Sean Neds do baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. And we're here bringing you some baseball history. That's right. We're a bi-weekly baseball history podcast where the story catcher doesn't know what the story pitcher, I stumbled a bit there, is uh, going to be throwing them. That's right. That's correct. That's right. And I'm ready. What pitch you got for me today? Uh, I got a story today that kind of hops around a little bit, to be honest. Hops around. Yeah. It's that, going to... That's not a pun. It's not a... So it's a knuckler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, It's sure. a knuckleball. Sure, it's a knuckleball coming at you today. It's going to dance all over the place and kind of hopefully hit the mitt. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, you know, I'll bring in my... With the 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 Josh Tolley or the uh, that's like the second reference to Josh. No, Tolley I know. In two I know. episodes, I think. <laughs> He's right there. We're not even recording on the same day. No. Well, I'm trying to. I was trying to remember uh, um, Wakefield's personal catcher. Uh, was God. it Veritek? Did Veritek catch Wakefield, or was it the other guy? Anyways, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I'm thinking of the dude with the long blonde hair. What's yeah. that guy? Can't. No. Okay, no. No. If you're a Boston Red Sox fan, let us know. There you go. We probably are shouting at the at the, <laughs> at the radio right now. That's right. Um, well, I'm excited for this wild story. Uh, before we get started, make sure you give us a follow, give us a review on the whatever platform you're listening to us on. And uh, we're on Twitter at Doing Baseball and Instagram at Doing Dot Baseball. I got my Twitter at Sean Do Baseball. And I'm at Ed's Do Baseball, of course. So yeah, give us a review, give us a rating, let us know who caught Tim Wakefield. <laughs> yeah, and of course, thank you for listening. <laughs> That's right. All right, Eddie, we ready to go? I'm ready to go. Let's yep. go. Okay, so Sean, many times before on this podcast, we've uh, mentioned that there are some players throughout baseball history that are so famous and have such a vast array of coverage on their lives that it'd be unlikely for us to make a contribution to the canon. Yes. Right? Because, you know, as we say, as we've mentioned, yes. that uh, we're looking on this podcast to cover some of the more covert, if you will. The obscure. So, yeah. So the more, yeah, the more, uh, you know, on the back burner stories of baseball history. The dumb shit. Yes. Yeah, the <laughs> weird stuff that you, that kind of, this, this is in the shadows, I think. Okay. Okay. So with, with that being said, it is, however, not impossible that some of the stories we learn of may be famous player adjacent. That's true. Right? Totally true. And, and worthy of being told. So today, I will tell you, Sean, a tale adjacent to one of the best players and possibly worst people in baseball history. Tyrus Raymond Cobb. Oh, shit. Okay, you've told a story adjacent to Ty. Well, it yeah. features Ty Cobb. Yeah, yeah, the Chalmers the race. The Chalmers race. The Chalmers you race. Know? So, um, now the story I keep alluding to here is not a full bio coverage of the great Cobb. Uh, I'm going to go into some of the history of his life and his family's life, but what I hope to do today is not necessarily to defend Ty Cobb per se, but maybe to shed a bit of light onto some of the possible reasons for his hardened character and perhaps some of Cobb's reputation could have been exaggerated for financial gain. 
Interesting. Yes. I was interested where you were going there. I was like, wow, <laughs> this could be bad. This is the end of the podcast right <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're saying there, there's, there's a chance that Ty Cobb's character was essentially built for financial reasons? Or financial gain, I should say. Yeah, some of some some of I'm saying that yeah, the 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 aura, if you will, of his character, yeah, may have been uh, exasperated, exaggerated to sell some things. Interesting. Continue. You know, that's but I should mention that's not you know, like I say, I, I'm not trying to defend Ty Cobb per <laughs> se. He still could and possibly probably was a pretty. Uh, hardened bad person, he you was, know, kind of shitty personality. But uh, he beat up a road worker. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I'm not here to defend that shit whatsoever. Okay, okay. I'm just here to tell you a crazy story from Ty Cobb's life that I had no idea about until a couple weeks ago. Fucking right, lay it okay. on me. Okay, so if you do want to read, I'll say this: if you do want to read about Ty Cobb specifically, there are countless pieces of literature out there yeah so i took a lot of my biographical summaries from uh daniel ginsburg's saber article once again saber is just you know it's it's one of the best places for anchoring a storyline for Top shelf. for a player yeah and later on we're going to talk about a couple specific pieces by one particular writer who was close to cobb interesting okay so with that Tyrus raymond cobb was born december 18th 1886 in the narrows georgia he was the oldest of three children of William Herschel Cobb, who was a school teacher, and and sorry, Georgia, Narrows, Georgia, the oldest of three children of William Herschel Cobb, a school teacher, and his fifteen-year-old wife Amanda Cobb. Jesus, okay, <laughs> yeah, okay. I actually think I might have heard that before, but it just sounds so much worse coming out of somebody you else's just mouth. Say it out loud. <laughs> yeah. So Amanda also came from a prominent Georgia, Georgian family. Her father was a military captain named Caleb Chitwood, who was elected to the Georgia House of Representatives in 1892. So that's, that's Ty's mom and dad. Yeah. So Ty and his younger brother Paul developed a passion for the game of baseball as they came of age at the turn of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. It is of note that Paul himself played nine seasons in the minor leagues. So there's a little nod to Brother Paul there. Yeah, didn't know that one. Yeah, but Tyrus, by the time he was 14 years old, was playing on the town team in Royston, Georgia, where he quickly became a standout. Obviously. From the Ty Cobb Museum's website, tycobb.org, Dick Baker of the Royston Cotton Kings was quoted to say in 1911, quote, Cobb was always a fine, clean chap who loved baseball, we never dreamed that we had the great star of baseball in our midst, but we are proud of the boy, and if you want to get a scrap out of the mildest manner in town, just say something about Cobb. Interesting. <laughs> so I guess... So and, uh, the, the, the most mild-mannered person would defend him. Yes. Yeah. I assume that's what scrap he's, means. Yeah, well, he's saying anyone would defend this guy. Mm-hmm. Amazing. At least his baseball ability. Well, yeah, I guess I guess that's true. Yes. So I assume uh, this town team, this was Ty playing with older competition, being simply, as I say, the town team. And since he was such a standout, he decided to focus all of his attention on the activities of baseball. And let me ask you this, Sean. Do you think that Ty Raymond Cobb's father was happy that his son was focusing all of his attention upon the activities of baseball? 
Uh, based on the question, no. Yeah, my tone. No, no you gonna, he, I, that's correct. He was not happy that his son was focusing all of his attention upon the activities of baseball because Ty's father, W. H. Cobb, was an educated man and professor who hoped that his sons would also go on to be professionals such as himself. Well, one did. The other was a minor, <laughs> minor <Yeah>. leaguer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think that's really what he meant. But yeah, uh, uh, So W.H. believed in scholarly pursuits. He was vice president of and helped to found an oratorical club in Maysville, Georgia in 1902. That's the, amazing. Yeah, the Atlanta. oratorical club? Yeah. They just, like, I guess give speeches to each other? Yeah, it's a public speaking club. Oh, well, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. The Atlanta Constitution newspaper wrote on July 31st of 1902, quote, A number of gentlemen met here yesterday and organized the Northeast Georgia Oratorical Association, the object, the object of which shall be to encourage the art of oratory. The association embraces six counties, Viz Hall, Banks, Jackson, Habersham, Franklin, and Madison. Professor T.H. Robertson, county school commissioner of Hall County, is president Professor W.H. Cobb, school commissioner of Franklin County, is vice president. Professor P. Taylors of Harmony Grove is secretary treasurer. Dr. W.B. Hardman of Harmony Grove offers two gold medals annually for the next 10 years. The winner to be decided by oratorical contest and the speakers chosen from their respective counties by similar contests in speaking. The speakers are to be from 14 to 30 years of age and bona fide students of the public schools in their respective counties, which is a weird, wide range of ages for school children. Did you I say guess. 14 to 30? Yeah. That's all right. Um, is that the end of the quote? Nope. The movement has been introduced to encourage the young men who are students in the schools to devote their spare time to the study of oratory and to induce teachers to teach it in the schools. There you go. Fuck. The shit they teach our kids. Yeah. Um, okay, I got some notes there for you. Okay. Uh, number one, as an oratory teacher, you started really strong with the old-timey okay. newspaper okay. accent, and then you kind of lost it I as it, it was a long it paragraph. Was, it was. Yeah, no. So that's that's one thing. Second thing, two gold medals. Two gold medals. Two gold medals. So. Yep. I don't quite understand, like, does first place get two gold medals? I don't know, that wasn't clear. <laughs> but annually, clearly for, explained. Yeah, so they're basically just like, you know what we need? Kids that can talk. Yeah. Well, and that's what, all right. Mm -hmm. So there, there was some, one other thing in there, but I think it might have been that 14 to 30 thing. Very strange. You would think like a 30-year-old would be able to just be able to throw down against <laughs> exactly. a 14-year-old. Exactly. In yeah. most things. But also, why would a 30-year-old still be a... <laughs> Student in the public school system. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, that's also a really great point. <laughs> uh, okay, so Mr. Cobb, who I mentioned, was a well-respected professor who had risen to the office of school commissioner of Franklin County. As you can tell, was a big fan of public speaking. Through his public speaking, he rose to be elected to state senator as well for Franklin County back in 1900. And I again quote the Atlanta Constitution. Quote, the Democrats of Franklin held their county primary today and settled by ballot a number of interesting contests that have absorbed public attention for the last few weeks. 
The results so far, as certain, show the nomination of Honorable W.H. Cobb, one of the ablest Democrats of Franklin County, for the seat of the 31st District in the State Senate. Honorable W.R. Little is the nominee of the party for the Office of Ordinary. The greatest degree of harmony prevailed at the precincts of the county, and one of the largest party votes ever cast in Franklin was registered today. Many of the contests have at this hour not been determined, but win or lose, the men who are candidates today will stand together for the victory in the election when the populist nominees must be met. Honorable W.H. Cobb, who will make the race for the Senate, it was well known over the district and his popularity with the people will have much to do with the result which will in all probability be in his favor. Honorable W.R. Little, the nominee for Ordinary, has represented his county in the legislature and his district in the Senate more than once, and some of the most salutary measures on the statute book owe their authorship to him. The Democrats of Franklin, Hart, and Habersham will make strong fight in the election. The contests over the party nominations have been active and determined. But with the primary over, the defeated candidates announced their readiness and willingness to support the victorious against the common enemy. With this harmonious feeling prevailing in Franklin, it is believed the election will go Democratic by a handsome majority. All right. So Cobb's on the ticket? Yeah. And and the the guy that he's running against, I guess, has been in office for a while. Yeah. And I guess they're feeling that they need some change. So yeah, so he's he's, uh, he's primarying him, and he's just like, all right, I'm gonna, he's they they've decided he'll be the new guy, yeah, the and, new blood, yeah. Like and, this guy's great at giving speeches. He runs a club, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. He's got the oratory club. That was after the fact. That was well, after this. But but if you if you go if you go and look at Ty, uh, I I found at least I'm sure you can find it lots of places. But at, at the Ty Cobb Museum's website, there's lots of uh, writings about you know, some of the accomplishments that his father had through his, you know, positions as school commissioner and in the Senate that, yeah. or before the Senate, he was a very popular guy. So, yeah. you know, so Mr. Cobb does win the election yep. and rose to the state Senate in 1900 and wished a similar path for his sons, particularly Ty. The highly intelligent young Ty, however, didn't enjoy his studies and his father's attempts to interest him in law or medicine were not, or were for not. It's just his first press conference. <laughs> Mr. Cobb, what are you looking to accomplish? Well, my son's a real piece of shit. <laughs> he likes baseball. He likes too baseball. Much. As a U.S. state senator, I'm going to write bills against baseball. I'm going to outlaw baseball. <laughs> that is my first duty. I don't think that, well, he, he, I don't think he would have said that. That wouldn't have been a popular platform at the time. Yeah, but secretly we know what he wanted. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Secret agenda of WH Cobb. This is what what, this is some deep state shit, right? Yeah. (laughs) The Cobbs wanted to destroy baseball. That's why he was racist. (laughs) Okay, he was so resentful. All right, I'll shut up. Yeah, yeah. Just stop. (laughs) However, Cobb loved, respected, and even idolized his father. WH Cobb was by far the most influential person in Ty's life. As Cobb related much later, quote, my father was the greatest man I ever knew. He was a scholar, state senator, editor, and philosopher. I worshipped him. He was the only man who ever made me do his bidding. (laughs) That's a fucking, that's one way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah, that was a quote from Ginsburg's Sabre article. That's fucking amazing. Yeah, so. It's just like, that's the one guy that could, that 
He could tell me what to do. <laughs> no one else can tell me what to do. He had complete control over me. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I was afraid. <laughs> I had no idea his dad was a fucking senator. Yeah. I know that has to be somewhere in like Ken Burns baseball or something like that. Oh, like likely. They, they probably yeah. like, but they probably mention it in passing. Right, like with like mm-hmm. one opinion, it was like Ken Burns effect. Like, oh, his father was a senator that hated baseball. <laughs> <laughs> but the young Ty Cobb used Hit four thousand one hundred and ninety-two hits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Never mind anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so the Ginsburg's piece continues. In nineteen oh four, Cobb, encouraged by a Royston teammate who had a failed professional tryout, contacted teams in the newly formed South Atlantic or Sally League. Mm-hmm. He uh, received a response from the Augusta tourists inviting Cobb to spring training if he was able to pay his own expenses and offering a contract of $50 per month, contingent on Cobb making the team, of course. Well, fun fact, I imagine that they would have lined up at the same time, but the Augusta tourists was also the team of John Bender. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Coming together. Yeah. So, uh, for young Tyrus, this was a dream come true, a chance to play professional baseball. And how old is he now? Uh, 1904. Yeah, so. 1904. He was born in 18... I can't even remember what year he was born in. 18... Jeez, Sean. It's on the first page right 1886. there. 1886. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, he's 18. Yeah. So, he's 18. There. He's like, I can go to spring training if I pay to go there myself, and I don't even guarantee. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of kids. <laughs> Sounds like my dream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that was me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll sleep in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, his father tried to talk him out of the decision, though, but finally relented, but told his son, quote, you've chosen, so be it, son. Go get it out of your system and let us hear from you. So, you know, I, I mean, he lets him go, but he's obviously still not entirely sold on the baseball thing because he basically says, just go get it out of your system. You'll be back, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, so Cobb was released just two games into his stay with Augusta. Oof. But immediately received an offer from a semi-pro team in Anniston, Alabama. Cobb called his father who advised him, Quote, go for it, and I want you to t- I want to tell you one other thing. Don't come home a failure. <laughs> okay, his tune's really changed <laughs> yeah. now. Whatever, get it out of your system. What, you didn't make the team? <laughs> you fucking... You better not come home. <laughs> <laughs> you better come home with a PhD or a 300 average. <laughs> that's that's going to be painted on my child's wall. <laughs> God, help your child. Oh, it's funny. <laughs> I know, right? It's funny. I know. It's funny. I know you're they'll, kidding. They'll hate me, but yeah. they'll love me. <laughs> they'll get 4,000 hits, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> These words were to have a great impact in shaping the life and baseball career of Ty Cobb. Cobb played well with Aniston, and by August, he received a telegram from Augusta asking him to rejoin the team. So this is still 1904. But it was 1905, however, that both dramatically altered the course of not only Ty Cobb's career in the game of baseball, but also in his life altogether. He found the racist potion. No. <laughs> well, I feel like you already feel, had the racist potion. Yeah, I feel like growing up in Georgia. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think that's what In the 1800s yeah. was the racist potion, but yes. Yeah, so. Yeah. so Cobb reported to Augusta for spring training and got the chance to play in two exhibition games against the Detroit Tigers. 
The Tigers trained in Augusta in return for an option to purchase one player from the Augusta team at a later date. It's a weird stipulation, but cool, I guess. Cool. So Cobb made an impression on the Tigers with his talent and his aggressive, even reckless style of play. Augusta had a poor start, though, that year, and Cobb's play was also not very good. In July, Andy Roth was fired as the team manager, and veteran George Lady, Leidy, it's L-E-I-D-Y, Leedy, Leedy. I'm gonna call him. Okay, Leedy. let's go, George Leedy. Leedy, yeah. Took the helm of the clubhouse and took Cobb under his wing. Mm-hmm. He told Young Ty that he was wasting his talent and schooled him in the finer points of the game. Cobb became the league's best hitter, and Detroit and the other teams began to take notice, and things were looking up for the young prospect. But the very foundations of Cobb's whole life were about to be altered. You know, you see, you have a blank look on your face, like you have no idea what's going to happen. I, I, well, I'm assuming the Tigers are going to purchase the contract. Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> just, just throwing that out there. That's why we don't do stories about famous people. <laughs> it is a story that has a lot of facts that remain in ambiguity, but what is true was that Cobb's father's days were numbered. Oh, fuck. And once again from Daniel Ginsburg and Sabre, quote, On the evening of August 8th, W.H. Cobb had left home announcing to his wife that he was going to their farm and would not be back that night. As it turned out, the elder Cobb suspected his wife of infidelity, and he returned to the house with a pistol later that night. Okay. Okay. So it's like, I'm off to the farm. Yeah. For the night. Yeah. All night. Not coming home off, as I said, the farm, mm-hmm. honey, that's far away. Away from here. It's, 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 I will not be home tonight. I will not be in the vicinity of the, our home. Yeah. The and, Cobb home, Cobb domicile, not me here. I will be gone. I'm going to ride a horse there, probably, even though I'm a senator. And <laughs> uh, we don't have phones, unless we do. But probably not at the farm, where I'll be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So not gonna go get a gun. Yeah. Goodbye. So return with the pistol later that night. Shortly after midnight, he climbed up on the porch roof and approached the bedroom window. Exactly what exactly what happened next is unknown. But Amanda Cobb put two bullets into her husband. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> killing him. Whoa! I mean, I, I mean, it's less awesome, but still awesome. <laughs> I, I mean, so she claimed to have mistaken her husband for a burglar, or a dude. He was just, uh, yeah, he was a guy with a gun on a roof. <laughs> yeah, claimed to have mistaken her husband for a burglar, but the physical evidence did not support her story. But he said he was going to the farm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I don't have all the all so, the facts of right, the right. investigation here, but this yeah, is what the story says. Bring it on. Bring it on. And I'm a, on her side. I'm her defense attorney. And a coroner's inquest ordered her arrest on the charge of manslaughter. Bullshit. Why? Well, it does. She. It, I'll, I'll mention that she does eventually <laughs> get acquitted. Okay. Well, don't whatever, say it you know. now. I'm assuming. I, I don't. I, I don't go too much further into the trial. Really? You'll see. You'll see. All right. Young Cobb was 
away still playing with the tourists in the Sally League and received a distressing telegram on the morning of August 9th, 1905. Your mom killed your dad. Oh, dude. No, no, no. Oh, no. Oh. It only read that his father had been killed in a shooting accident the previous night (laughs) at the Cobb home in Royston, Georgia. Still bad, yeah. But the telegram left out the shocking details. Which would come soon enough. (laughs) Mom, oh my God, did you hear about Dad? (laughs) Oh, no. That's not how it went down, but that would be awful. Oh, okay. (laughs) So the tragic incident later evolved into a local scandal when the townsfolk of Royston heard that it was Amanda Cobb that had pulled the trigger. When Ty arrived home on August 9th, he walked into a horrific scene of grief and confusion. Sheriffs, doctors, news reporters, and stunned townsfolk overran the family home and the street outside. Neighbor Joe Cunningham and another boyhood friend, Clifford Gin, offered Cobb the first explanations of the horrific events. Quote, He was shot about midnight. He climbed onto the porch of his house. It happened up there. They're trying to find out how he was killed. Neither of the men had the heart to tell young Tyrus that allegedly it was his mother, Amanda, that fired the gun and killed his father. Okay. (laughs) This is... All right. So I guess eventually that all comes to light and he finds out exactly what happens. And, you know, after a week of mourning and taking care of family business, Ty Cobb just rejoined Augusta. Okay. After a week. Yeah. So now it's like mom's, you know, I guess in... I assume jailed. jailed, Or at least, you know, under house arrest. Yeah, and and awaiting trial or whatever. That's fucked up. Yeah, so uh, I will mention the trial a bit later on. But uh, after a week of mourning, return to Augusta. Before the month of August was over, the Tigers exercised their option and purchased Cobb's services for $700. Nice. This, of course, would have been a great moment under different circumstances. It was the realization of his boyhood dream, a dream achieved with the support, however, in slight defiance, defiance of his beloved father and his lack of faith, but the shadow of tragedy hung over the future Hall of Famer. In his autobiography, Cobb wrote, quote, in my grief, it didn't matter much. I only thought my father won't know it. That's pretty fucked up. He was just like, well... The worst part is he's never gonna get to see me. I mean, it's it's kind of I'm never gonna like, get to show my dad how. how <laughs> it's like both very sad and also very like shitty at the same time. Well, yeah, <laughs> they're kind of in the same category. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, like that's the thing, right? You're like sometimes like people you love, you're like ah, oh, I never get to like show them that I'm awesome again mm-hmm. <laughs> or like yeah. never get to prove him wrong yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. but yeah no so that's that's sad so he's making his debut with that yeah so he's basically I'm saying he's carrying that around for the rest of his career which is you know that's that yeah. makes you angry that that does I I will it's not you know yeah there is definitely something there especially I didn't understand the mom killing the de- like holy shit mm-hmm. So she gets eventually acquitted in like self defense, but because well, like, he was on the yes, roof, yes, yes, it's totally justified. But like, you know, with a gun, yeah, yeah, <laughs> fuck around and find out. I mean, 
<laughs> was she cheating on him though? We'll never know. Well, don't, well, there are some stories from, I mean, there's again, it's just rumor mill, you know, throughout like history of like the townspeople saying like, well, WH did go out of town a lot and there he was, was a, a guy. senator. Yeah, he was out of town a lot and there was a guy that would stop by the house all the time whenever he was gone and blah, blah, blah. Oh right? my so, God. Anyway. It doesn't justify. I can't believe it's ah. Anyway, dumb fuck getting killed. Yeah. (laughs) Anyways, so So Cobb debuted in the big leagues on August thirtieth, nineteen oh five, and appeared in forty one games for the Tigers that season. Uh, He hit a modest two forty batting average. However, he received the typical rookie hazing from his teammates, much to his chagrin. Given Cobb's state of grief and the fact that this was his first time out of the South, he was unable to deal with the hazing, which led to feelings of resentment towards his teammates that carried on for years. And what year is this? Is this like 1905 or 1905? 1905. Yeah. yeah. So 1905. I mean, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. just. <laughs> I wonder what does it does it give any examples of the hazing? Or no, is it, I don't have any. They're but. just they're just being dicks to the rookie. That's mm-hmm. like. Yeah, twenty years old, and they're like, "Yeah, just fucking yeah. Peach Boy." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Peach Kid. And after the nineteen oh six season was no better for Cobb, uh, he continued to feud with teammates during spring training while his mother's trial was going on. Cobb found his hats ruined and his bats cut. Okay, that's some of it. Yeah, there's yeah, a couple you do. examples. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. Hey, his mom's on trial for murder. Let's ruin his stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is pretty, pretty <laughs> shitty. That's yeah. pretty shitty. Yeah. Yeah. In his autobiography, Cobb described the hazing by his teammates as, quote, the most miserable and humiliating experience I've ever been through. Yeah. So he took it to heart big time. I would want to beat up several road workers. <laughs> Those are my people, man. <laughs> oh, no, I know. I see your shirt. Yeah. <laughs> On the field, Cobb played well, eventually winning the center field job. The stress wore him down, though, and he was out of the lineup the second half of July and all of August with what may have been an emotional emotional and physical collapse. He returned in September and finished the season with a 316 batting average in 98 games. So the events of 1905 and 1906 changed Cobb forever. Already strong-willed and competitive, Cobb became kind of a loner and at war with the world. And while his relationships... His relations with teammates eventually improved, and while Cobb did make some lasting friendships, his will to succeed at any cost never changed. Late in life, when asked by Al Stump why he fought so hard in baseball, Cobb explained, quote, I did it for my father. I knew he was watching me, and I never let him down. Oh. Yeah. That's nicer than, like, I'll show him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it was uh, it was as much animosity as we kind of well, made it seem like there was. Yeah, there maybe that was ago, a but... bad quote on their part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so now, as I mentioned, Sean, a lot of these writings are coming from Daniel Ginsburg's fantastically deep dive into the life of Cobb at Saber.org. But I learned that a lot of his research comes from Cobb's 1961 book, My Life in Baseball, The True Record, which was an autobiography, but also ghostwritten by the writer that I just mentioned, Al Stump. Ooh. Okay. And at this point, I kind of want to switch focus because, as mentioned, there's plenty of coverage on on the story of Ty Cobb's career, and they cover it much more thoroughly than we have time for on this podcast. Yeah, it would be a 
three hour episode. Yeah. yeah. So, but I talked about Al Stump because it's from his biographies and another by Charles Alexander, where most of the lore of Ty Cobb stems. Mm -hmm. But over the years, it has come to light that some of Stump's claims may be worthy of questioning how voracious they really are. Please don't tell me the road workers. At wrong. least in the accuracy of their details. No, I don't think that one's. I don't think that one's wrong. <laughs> he was still like a crusty dude, and like you know, still had his prejudice. Prejudices, prejudices yeah, know? for sure. Yeah, but I did not. Yeah, you're right. The backstory of tr- grinding your way to the big leagues while your father's killed, and then your mother's accused of killing your father, and then being on trial while dickheads are. Cutting your hats up. <laughs> and cutting your I'm hats, kind yeah. of feeling empathy. <laughs> yeah, you're feeling a little empathetic <laughs> I'm towards I'm feeling psycho. a little empathy. I mean, you still got to work on yourself yeah. and, like, you know, yeah. you know, not be a dick, but, yeah. you know. Okay, so, <laughs> so this whole saga actually came to my attention when I read a 2001 article by Gilbert King yeah. for Smithsonian Magazine where he posed the question, quote, did the baseball great really confess to murder on his deathbed? I might have read that. Did you read this article? I, it's long in my past, so yeah. elaborate, please. Okay, so in 1960, Ty Cobb was losing his battle with prostate cancer mm-hmm. after a December 1959 diagnosis that was coupled with revelations that Cobb also had afflictions of diabetes, high blood pressure, and Bright's disease, which is a... It's a kidney infection. Oh, okay. Okay. I had to look that up. I didn't know yeah, what Bright's well, disease was either. Well, we've learned at least one thing today. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> he had a long he had long retired from a career that saw Cobb become perhaps the most competitive and complex personality ever to appear in a big league uniform and arguably the greatest player in the history of the game. So in his career, just you know, let's go through a quick little bit of his stats here. He won eleven or twelve batting titles. I guess one was Debatable, the Chalmers race one. But yeah, definitely double-digit batting titles. Yep, so uh, batted over 403 times and won the 1909 Triple Crown. When he retired, he held career records for games played, at-bats, runs, hits, total bases, and batting average. But despite these godly achievements, the mortal Cobb was dying. So Doubleday and Company, which was a, a publishing company, just to clarify. Okay, yeah, good. Commissioned thanks. Al Stump to work closely with the dying Cobb on an autobiography. Yeah. So Cobb retained editorial control, and Stump claimed his role was to help the ball player give his account of his legendary but controversial life and career, even if the effort might be self-serving. Yes. Right. I'm, so... Before we go any further from here, right? I've seen the movie. You've seen the movie. I've seen the movie. But that's based on his 1994 book. Whoa. Yes. <laughs> this is the 1960 this book. This is a 1961 book. Oh, all right. Okay, so in the 1961 stump book version, Cobb was riding in his car with his wife, Charlie, to the railway station in Detroit to catch a train for a Tigers exhibition game in Syracuse, New York, when three men waved them down. Thinking they might be having some trouble, he stopped to help. Immediately, the men attacked Cobb, who slid out of the car and began to fight back. Quote, one of the mugs I knocked down got up and slashed at me with a knife, the book says. I dodged, but he cut me in the back. I couldn't tell how bad it was, but my arms were still working. 
Cobb says the men retreated, retreated as he chased one of them down, quote, leaving him in worse condition than he'd arrived in. Another one returned and cornered Cobb in a blind passageway, quote, I had something in my hand, which I won't describe, but which often come in handy in Detroit in the days when it was a fairly rough town. I used it on him at some length. If he still lives, he has the scars to show for it, leaving him unconscious. I drove on to the depot. So, so basically, Stump writes this account, but, you know, it's unconfirmed what happens at the end. Cobb basically is just like, I beat the shit out of this guy. I don't, I don't know what I, I left. Then I pulled out a pitchfork and fucking forked this <laughs> other guy. But I'm just going to say it was not a, a pitchfork. It was, I didn't say pitchfork. Al, Al, what are you writing? <laughs> yeah. Just, just say I, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just say it was unclear. Say it was unclear. It wasn't unclear. I didn't machete anybody I to did, death at all. Look, man, <laughs> I did not pull out a gun and then put a knife in front of the gun and then shoot a bullet so the knife would fly at the guy <laughs> and then leave him in worse shape than what I, I did got not there. remove my harpoon gun <laughs> from my Chalmers R30. <laughs> Look, we're driving, and I had a attack helicopter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so Ty Cobb died on July 17, 1961, at age 74, and the publishers hurried to get his autobiography onto bookshelves. The book sold well when it was released just two months later, but in December of that year, True Magazine published a story by Al Stump entitled... Ty Cobb's wild 10-month fight to live, which offered a salacious behind-the-scenes and supposedly more truly accurate portrait of the Georgia Peach. Stump made the claim that, quote, the first book was a cover-up. I felt very bad about it. I felt I wasn't being a good newspaperman. Okay. So he's saying that Cobb was much worse than how we wrote in the book. Jesus. Okay. Oh, well, I guess, yeah. So you're, yeah, okay. All right. So the, the, the original book, he's like, yeah, it's a bunch of it was like, self-endearing bullshit from Cobb. Yes. Yeah. And I had to write it and make it seem like, so here's what really happened. Two months after he dies. Yeah. So, you know, so now that Ty Cobb was dead, Stump had decided that it was time to release the ballplayer's supposedly private confessions and utterances. In the True article, Stump recalled Cobbs visiting the cemetery in Royston, Georgia, where his parents were laid to rest. Quote, My father had his head blown off with a shotgun when I was 18 years old by a member of my own family. Stump quoted Cobb as saying, I didn't get over that. I've never gotten over that. That's some dark shit, man. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, like, I, yeah, I mean... I was like, no, you can't get over that. No, don't get over that. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. Yeah. So he allegedly carried more than a million dollars in stock certificates and bonds in a paper bag as he'd made a fortune investing in Coca-Cola and General Motors stocks. Cobb. Cobb did. He as well carried a loaded Luger. Cobb checked into hospitals and berated doctors and staff for treatment only to demand that Stump smuggle in liquor for him or sneak him out late at late at night to visit bars and casinos 
Okay, I need to just address the Luger, because at first I was like, this is pre-World War II. But no, it's not. No, this is in the <laughs> So he's just carrying it like around like the Nazi gun. Yeah, in 1959. threatening people and being like, sneak me in shit. I got stocks in my pocket. <laughs> Take me to the casino. I need a drink. <laughs> That's the Ty Cobb we all love right here. The Nazi fuck... <laughs> <laughs> with bad habits. Yeah. Stump said he compile, complied with Cobb's wishes because he feared for his own life. <laughs> yeah. I mean. He, he's brandishing a gun yeah, and I saying, mean. get me liquor in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Regarding the incident in Detroit in 1912, Stump quoted Cobb as saying he killed one of his attackers, beating the man with the butt of his Belgian pistol and then using the gun's sight as a blade and, quote, slash away until the man's face was faceless. <laughs> Jesus, okay. I left him there, not breathing in his own rotten blood. <laughs> okay. In a later biography of Cobb, Stump added that a few days after the attack in Detroit, quote, a press report told of an identif unidentified body found off Trumbull Alley, Trumbull Avenue in an alley. Okay. Okay. So, Doug Roberts, enter Doug Roberts, new character, a lawyer and former prosecutor had doubts about Stump's account and did extensive research into the incident for a 1996 article for the National Pastime, which is uh, Sabre's peer-reviewed journal. Mm -hmm. So... After examining autopsy records at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office and after combing through all of the Detroit newspapers from the time, Roberts concluded that Stump's claim that an unidentified body had been reported in the press was not true. That's right. That's what I was going to say. I was like thinking I wasn't going to ruin it for everybody. <laughs> but when you said that, I'm like, didn't they fucking look at this? <laughs> Roberts also found no record of any deaths due to blunt force trauma in Detroit in August of 1912. Well, did they look if somebody took their gun sight and <laughs> yeah. fucking slashed they away mean, yeah. in somebody's <laughs> face until they were rotting in their own blood? <laughs> Apparently that there was no record of that either. Exactly. So, <laughs> so there's some fishy stuff going on here, Sean. Hundred percent. Who do right. we believe? That's right. And then, in the 1980s, 20 years after Cobb's death, a large collection of Ty Cobb memorabilia was being shopped around to collectors. This is his bat. This is his glove. This is his Luger that has bloodstains on the site. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Don't worry that. about that. Don't check the records in August of 1912. <laughs> <laughs> Personal items such as his hats, pipes, and dentures. Even objects of great historical significance, such as his diary, came up for sale. I wonder if it mentioned anything about August of 1912. <laughs> Turns out Ty Cobb killed like nine people, everybody. Did, he was the first serial killer in America, was Ty Cobb. <laughs> so the man behind the sale of these items was Al Stump, who allegedly had cleaned out the ballplayer's mansion after he died. 
Okay, well, that's one benefit of just living with a dying, terrifying old man who's threatening you. <laughs> yeah. Well, when this I guy dies, I was so dies, scared I I'm robbed gonna... him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, he's dead. Maybe wait until he was very dead or almost dead to rob him. Yeah. I mean, have some kind of class, right? Mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> Most of these items were purchased by mega collector Barry Halper, and he held on to these items until he decided to sell them through the Sotheby's auction house in 1999. So Sotheby's prints up these catalogs with the Ty Cobb items in them, right? But collectors and historians became suspicious that Cobb's diary was forged, along with the hundreds of letters and documents that Cobb had supposedly marked with his signature... Sotheby's removed these items from the auction at this point, and then the FBI did eventually confirm that the diary had been forged. Okay. I don't think during the process of the rest of the items being sold in the auction, but eventually it did turn out that the diary was not real. How did... I mean, I guess for money, but, like, why? (laughs) Just money. Money, yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I mean, uh, we could try that. <laughs> we could, but we we abso- we're not going to. We absolutely <laughs> could be like, oh my God, I found Phil Esposito's notebook. I got home Aaron Judge's home run 61st ball. We yeah. could do that tonight. We could. <laughs> we could just use our ticket and be like, the ball went into foul territory first, or after, <laughs> after it went over the fence and then came back to us. So it's his home run ball. Yep. Here's our ticket from foul territory. <laughs> so Stump, uh, so, hold on. Yes, they confirmed the diary had been forged. And even simply the number of artifacts that were being sold one, led one memorabilia dealer to conclude that, quote, Stump was buying this old stuff from flea markets and then adding engravings and other personalizations to give the appearance of authenticity. What a piece of shit. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like, not that, like, once again, it's for money, and mm-hmm. people have done worse things for money, but, yeah, I mean, why? If you complained about him so much, then why? <laughs> Want to hear something else that was up for auction? Sure, go. One of the lots up for auction was the double-barreled shotgun Amanda oh. Cobb had purportedly used to kill her husband. Now, that's something I would buy. <laughs> Not it's got it. It's you know it works. You know it does yeah. its job. It's got some value to it, and you know it made Ty Cobb's life miserable. Yeah. <laughs> like a bat, like he might not have even used it in a game. Like who knows, right? But a shotgun, you, you know, know that had cultural significance. Yeah, that days, blew but... that motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in Stump's article for True Magazine, Cobb was quoted as saying that his father's head was, quote, blown off with a shotgun. The shotgun which Cobb had supposedly had engraved and used on many a duck hunt. Okay. <laughs> was one of the big ticket items included in the Sotheby's catalog. Yeah, man, that's, I can't. That's too fucked up. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm not even going to say it. So, Ron Cobb. No relation to Ty. <laughs> okay. Was, but who was an advisor to the Ty Cobb Museum in Royston, Georgia. Okay. Was like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know. Yeah. So he's like, you know, he's plugged right into the history of Ty Cobb and he sees this going on and he's like, okay, red flag, guys. Yeah. Red flag. So 
he is shocked that such an artifact would suddenly surface after so many years. So he begins his own investigation into it and discovers that during the inquest, Amanda Cobb told the Franklin County coroner that it was a pistol that she used to shoot her husband. Yeah. When, when she mistook him for the burglar that fateful night. I think you said that. No, I didn't. No, no. He, Mr. Cobb was carrying a pistol. No, I know. Okay. Well, maybe you didn't. Either way. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so. It's bullshit. Yeah. The coroner ultimately concluded that William Herschel Cobb died of a wound from a pistol bullet and there was no mention of a shotgun in any records. Ron Cobb could only come to the conclusion at that point that Stump had twisted the story for his own gain. Yeah, he just took Cobb's duck hunting rifle and was like, this killed his dad and he shot ducks Look, with it. And here's where he put a notch in for each person he murdered. <laughs> in his diary that I definitely didn't write. Yeah. So Stump's True Magazine article won the Associated Press Award for the best sports story of 1962, and it did a lot of work to shape the memory and public perception of the baseball great. Quote, from all of baseball, three men and, th and three only appeared for his funeral, Stump wrote at the end of his story, as if Cobb died a despised man who had alienated opponents and teammates alike. The Sporting News, however, reported that Cobb's family had told friends and baseball officials that they wanted his funeral to be private and requested that they not attend, despite offers from several baseball greats to serve as pallbearers. So they, they did the funeral only 48 hours after he died. Okay. So that, that's also why I'm like, like, was Stump stealing from Cobb the whole time that he was writing for him? Because like, it seems like, I feel like after that 48 hours, he wouldn't have been able to return to the thing unless he ransacked the place during that 48 hours while they were preparing. It's pretty fucking <laughs> obvious. Okay. And we <laughs> have deduced this this whole time. And there's no possible way that like, we can get sued for this. But it's pretty clear that Stump killed Top. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's in my opinion. It's going to confirm that that's what happened. <laughs> no, no, no. But, like, yeah, no, that is super, uh, I mean, that's, that's fast. Depending on what culture you're from, sometimes they have a fast funeral. Sometimes they have a slow funeral. But, yeah, it, it seems pretty relatively quick turnaround there. But, yeah, no, that's, that's pretty fucked that just... Uh, it's clearly, he's clearly lying about a lot of... A lot of the things. A lot yeah. of the things. It, it also should be noted that most of Cobb's closest baseball friends were already dead by 1961 anyways. So, yeah. You know. He was in his 70s, so yeah. Yeah. So we thank baseball historians such as Doug, Doug Roberts and Ron Cobb, who point to Stump's role in perpetuating the myths, exaggerations, and untruths that potentially skew the memory of Ty Cobb. Stump wrote another book on Cobb in 1994, which we mentioned before, which is what the Tommy Lee Jones film mm -hmm. is mostly based upon. But again, the veracity of those stories are questionable as well. They kind of overlap. Like it's, yeah, you know, it's not like a whole new thing of revelation. Like, this is the but, real book with the real stuff. And it's like the old book, but it's got more, more piss more and violence. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Much more blood. <laughs> Uh, so, um, Stump told a reporter shortly before he died in 1995, quote, I guess, or told a reporter after he died why he wrote another book. 
Uh, and he said, I guess because I had all this leftover material and I thought, what am I going to do with all this? I think I did it for the money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you say after he died, I mean, after Cobb died, he'd already like done that. So, but yeah, he did it for the money. Yeah. Well, you know, a reporter can't ask a man why he wrote a second book after the man has died. No, no. This <laughs> That's not shortly before he died. Shortly before. Yeah. I thought you said yeah. after. I might have. After he died. I meant to say shortly before Stump died in 1995. Okay. A reporter yeah. asked him why well, he wrote another you book. You know what you could use? What's that? An orator club. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> now, I hear those are all the rage about 115 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Especially in southern Georgia. Yeah. Um, so there you go. That's the story of like how, you know, again, not to defend Ty Cobb. He was probably pretty shitty in a lot of regards, but, <laughs> you know. Uh, there's like a say, lot I, about him. There's, that, there's that, a lot of background to Ty Cobb's story that, you know, maybe explains why he was such a hardened character and, you know, played with such tenacity and, you know, was so fucking crusty. Yeah. You know, not well, that it excuses anything. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you, Sadzi. No, that was uh, that was interesting. I was wondering where you were going to go with that. I mm-hmm. thought you were going to be like, and that's why Ty Cobb was the least woke baseball player ever. Yeah. No. <laughs> and no. Manfred stealing all-star games from people and shit. Anyways, <laughs> that was a great story. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. The Ty Cobb tale, uh, I, I think I knew his dad died, but I didn't. His mom shot him. Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. Yeah, I was. that's what kind of started me down. I started with just you know like holy shit ty cobb's mom killed his dad like i didn't even know ty cobb's dad died in such a like horrific way but uh i I mean i don't know why that's not like such i mean i guess you kind of want to keep the greats like as clean as possible or whatever it seems like that's what they're kind of trying to do but yeah it's a pretty dark story from from the history of one of the most famous players in all of baseball history but well, and that's that's true. And then the, like the whole Alex Stump things and stuff like that. And like I knew kind of that was the exaggeration, and and the killing a man thing was not a hundred percent verified, and and no one could really say if it's true. So mm-hmm. I somehow knew that did Ty, you know, did Ty Cobb kill somebody would somehow be a question raised on this podcast eventually. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you raised it in like a broader context than just trying to like make that a whole episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause like, you know, I, I'm not prepared to do forensic investigation for a crime that happened in 1905. Look, here's what I'm thinking. He beat the living shit out of somebody and that person probably got brain damage, but didn't <laughs> die. That's my that's my analysis. There it is. Okay. That's Sean Ned's do baseball this right. week. Yeah. This 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 fortnight. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's that's the story. But I, I again, I want to give shout out to Daniel Ginsburg for his saber article and and for uh, Gilbert King at Smithsonian Magazine for the for the knife in the back article. And you know, there's there's a lot of good literature out there stumps books and uh even even i found a good article about the tragic called the tragic death of ty cobb's father by gary livicari at baseballhistorycomesalive.com whoa yeah so so that's a pretty fun website so maybe uh check it out maybe we will all right well until next time uh as i say give us a review give us a rating apple podcast spotify wherever you're getting this podcast uh follow us on twitter at doing baseball and at instagram at doing dot baseball 
I'm on Twitter at Sean Do Baseball. And I'm at Ed's Do Baseball. And join us next month as we bring you some playoff stories, World Series stories. Yes, I, got, stories. I already got mine in the chamber. Oh, it's buddy. ready to go. Oh, buddy. Uh, hope your team does well in the playoffs, and I hope my team does, does better. better. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Take Until care. next time. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. We're doing the baseball. Okay, bye. Bye.